Welcome to the Stefan Levira Podcast. Welcome podcast listeners. Uh, today, our guest is the founder and owner of Upstream Data. His name is Steve Barber. Welcome, Steve. Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Excellent to have you on. Um, Steve, so I've seen a lot of your posts on Twitter and you know, there's a bit of chatter around your company and I, I like some of your perspectives on energy. So I thought it would be a good uh, interview for the listeners to learn a little bit more about you and what you guys are doing at uh, Upstream Data. So maybe you just want to start with a bit of background about yourself and what Upstream Data is. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a mechanical engineer. Uh, I've been working in oil field for the last uh, eight years or so since I graduated in uh, 2011. Um, but yeah, I was doing production engineering, so like you know, producing oil basically here in Canada. Uh, I, I live in Alberta uh, in a small town. Uh, we do like heavy oil production. And uh, yeah, so I was doing that for a bunch of years. And so I, I, I quit that job in uh, 2016 to go start my own company, which was, and I still do this, but it's uh, sort of a product design company related to oil field, like for downhole tools and that kind of thing. It's sort of one of my passions, I guess. And um, in that time frame, that's when I started Upstream Data as well. Um, I actually, uh, I didn't know a lot about Bitcoin at the time. Like I, so this is like early 2016. I'd, I'd heard of Bitcoin, um, mainly just, I think I probably caught wind of it in the previous bubble in like 2013 timeframe, but I never really looked into it at all. So I didn't really know anything about it. But it was in this downtime, like when I was uh, in between work, I just quit and I was trying to get this new thing off the ground that I, uh, I learned about Bitcoin and I learned about, um, you know, like <laughs> probably like yourself and like a lot of people, I just immediately thought it was really interesting and spent a lot of time uh, learning about it. And it was mining that really attracted me uh, to Bitcoin because uh, I sort of, it's sort of like I, I realized like pretty much right away when I was reading about mining and, and how you can just uh, at the time, you know, just all I really knew about it was you could just plug a computer into any power source and, and earn money. And that intrigued me because we have this problem in, uh, in the oil and gas industry um, of venting and flaring of uh, natural gas. So, uh, yeah, I started upstream data to uh effectively uh create a product to solve that problem so uh yeah i started upstream data in 20 in uh i officially started it in 2017 early and i had been thinking about it basically from mid 16 when i was um, learning about bitcoin it took me a little Fantastic. while to uh take the plunge and uh make an investment into it but so what i do is uh I realize, you know, mining and a lot of people are, are aware that mining is pretty incredible and in that you can, uh, any energy source effectively, no matter where it is, has uh, the same value if you apply the same like uh, ASIC to it, like the same chip efficiency. It doesn't really matter where it's located. You don't need it to be on a grid. Uh, it doesn't matter what country it's in. As long as, you ha as, long as you're mining with the same um, ASIC, you're going to be making the same amount of value. So this is really cool. And I, I know like guys like Andreas call it like energy arbitrage. And uh, 
so it's a really good solution to oil and gas because so what I built what I build and uh, I've only built a few so far but uh, my first prototype was basically I call it a hash gen skid and it's a it's a shipping container so anyone familiar with mining would already probably be familiar with people that build shipping container uh, uh, Bitcoin mines they're pretty useful in a sense because they're highly portable so if you have uh, if you have to move it from for whatever reason from one one energy source to another it's pretty useful that way um, but with me I, uh, I build these things with a power plant inside it and I move it from oil site to oil site so if you have an oil well yeah, or a gas well any any natural gas source or any combustible fuel source that can basically power an engine or a turbine you could uh, yeah, you could mine Bitcoin with it. So, so yeah, that's what I do. I build uh, these uh, portable. I just call them hash gen skids, and I the main, the main purpose is actually to sell them to oil, uh, oil and gas producers to, because it's really their problem that they're meant to solve, which is the venting and the flaring of, uh, of, uh, well, essentially waste gas. I guess you could call it. Right. So can you tell us a little bit more about the venting and flaring aspect? Like, why is that a waste? What What's the difference between, you know, using your product versus not using your product? Yeah, for sure. So like, uh, I'll talk to you mostly about like the Canadian oil and gas industry, because I'm, I'm very familiar with that. But this pretty much applies to any oil and gas industry anywhere in the world. Um, so in Canada, uh, we have a lot of heavy oil reserves. So Heavy oil, the difference between heavy oil and conventional oil is the oil is a lot uh, more dense and more viscous. So it, it's, it's sort of like molasses. It can, it can literally come out, come up from uh, the wellbore, like almost like a solid. Um, so being uh, this quality um, and also uh, it, it's in an unconsolidated sand is what we call it. So it's not in like a sandstone, which is like a hard sort of rock like uh, sandstone it's in it's in basically loose sand so when the when it's produced to surface with a pump um, you're pumping sand with the oil emulsion oil and water and the reason why that's relevant is because uh, in this industry we can't use pipelines um, in heavy oil production when you have all the sand because you can't you just can't you can't pump sand down a pipeline it just packs it off so you have to pump it on surface, just straight to surface into a tank and let the sand settle out. So the point is that we don't have pipelines like between all of our well sites. I mean, we do on some wells, it depends on the, on the quality of the emulsion, but on the vast majority in heavy oil, we produce into the, the facility on surface and then we truck it to the, to wherever it's getting treated. So, we don't have pipelines. We don't have a lot of pipelines. And certainly when you produce oil and this basically applies everywhere in oil and gas, um, there's a certain amount of solution gas that comes out of solution when, when the pressure's dropped off the, uh, off the oil, um, basically it's called the bubble point pressure, but the, the gas breaks out and separates in, in our case, it separates as it's produced up the tubing, the casing gas comes up the, the casing side. And so what, is happening today, I guess the state of the art in certainly in Canada is actually there's a fair amount of venting. So there's a quite a large amount of venting actually. Um, I was doing, uh, I, I did a presentation recently and I quantified it. It's, it's on some of the regulator w w regulators websites, but an equivalent, I can't remember the, 
the volume, but in, in equivalent uh, value um, at like $2 per gigajoule, it's like $700 million uh, a year. So it's quite a bit of, quite a bit of money, even at low value gas. So um, yeah, these companies, you know, we, nobody wants to vent methane. It's, it's, it's not really ideal. It's pretty bad for the environment. Um, it's, well, to be specific, specific, it's, uh, it's, it's considered, uh, uh, 25 times worse than if you combust it. So what, what I mean by that, like is one kilogram of, let's say methane vented into the atmosphere is equivalent to 25 kilograms of CO2. And that's using, there's something called a global warming potential scale. It's a hundred year, uh, time frame, but it's just really bad to vent methane. It's, it just has a really high, uh, capacity to hold heat in the atmosphere. So a lot of, a lot of oil companies will, they'll try to, you know, it's all about economics, right? But, um, when they can, we'll conserve it. Like we'll put a pipeline in, get it to a market somewhere. Um, but in a lot of cases, this is not viable. So the second best option is to combust it, like just burn it. And that's where you see, you know, like, uh, a lot of one of the one of the symbols for the oil, oil and gas industry is is the flare, and uh, yeah, that's that's really what's happening in a lot of cases. But flares are also used at facilities for other reasons. But but a lot of the time at upstream oil wells, uh, all the gas is just flared off, like in the shale oil plays in the in the northern U.S. Like when they frack these uh, these tight reservoirs, they produce a lot of gas, and a lot of the time they just flare it off because they can't get a market to it. So, uh, so yeah, and, and can like my solution is effectively, um, I, w- I try to work with these oil producers, um, and I sell these, I build and I fabricate and sell these, uh, these skids that'll, I mean, and, and the skid itself, it, all it is, is a, uh, it's a natural gas engine, which anyone in this industry is already familiar with. And it's just tied into electrical infrastructure to uh, power ASICs. Cool. So tell us a little bit about then how the, so instead, so basically it gives them the option of instead of venting, instead of that, it does what? Yeah. So like, so for example, I have one customer. Um, so the way it is in Canada, there's a certain amount of gas you're allowed to vent like compliantly with regulations. And then if you're over that volume, you're non-compliant and you're, you effectively have to shut your well in. So there's an economic cost there. You have to shut it in or you have to do something like conserve it or combust it. Um, so I have one customer right now. I'm moving a skid there next week. Um, he, uh, they're not, they're not sure yet about investing in, in like a Bitcoin skid, but they're really interested in trying it out and uh, seeing how it works and just seeing if, I guess, just, you know, trialing the viability. But effectively, so they have a site, it's going to be, I'm told it's venting around 800 cubes, uh, cubic meters of gas per day. Um, I'm not sure what that is off the top of my head in standard uh, in, in, in cubic feet, but um, uh, it's a fair amount. And it's, um, they're allowed to, uh, oh, I'm sorry, on this site, they're only allowed to vent 500 cubes a day. And that's all you're allowed to do. That's the, that's the rules in Alberta. I live right on the border with Alberta and Saskatchewan. So in, in Saskatchewan, the rules are a little different, but, um, so what this skid will basically, the engine will consume the gas. I'll just tie it in. It's, it's, the skid is fully like, uh, it's plug and play, I guess is what I call it. Like 
every, it has everything you need to start mining. Like it has, you know, it has an, a network connection. All you got to do is plumb in the gas and the gas goes through the gas tree. Uh, so basically through some regulators into the engine. Uh, engine consumes it and the engine is loaded up with, um, you know, Bitcoin ASICs. So I can control the, the gas, the rate of gas consumption by how much I load the engine up. So if, you know, if I want to, I have a certain max limitation on what I have in these skids right now, which is up to 130 kilowatt. So I can basically power up to 130 kilowatt. Um, the one I'm moving to his site next week is only 75 kilowatt, but that'll do about like, it depends on the gas quality, like the heating value of the gas, but it'll consume approximately like 700 to 800 cubes a day. So it should pretty much bring him, it should take all of his excess gas and consume all of it. And if I find that it's consuming too much or, or, or I don't have enough gas to run all the, all the miners I put out there, I can just take some miners off and redeploy it elsewhere. So it's right. Okay. It's like the right way to think about it. It's just a form of combustion that is actually doing something useful. Whereas if they didn't do, if they didn't do this, they would, you know, they would have to basically, uh, because they're non-compliant, they'd either have to shut the well in or like slow it down. Cause if you slow down your production rate, you'll slow down the gas rate, but that's not good either. Cause you, you're, they're losing money by uh, not being as productive. They can either do that, which is losing money, or they can pay for a flare, which is quite a bit of money as well. And so all their options are to lose money. <laughs> so uh, my option actually uh, has a pretty, pretty decent net present value, um, or at least, uh, it all, you know, depends where the Bitcoin price goes, but the operating cost is quite low. So it's, it's pretty competitive even in this mining environment, which is really tough right now. Okay, great. So let's talk about the hash gen. I understand you've had a prototype or a first model of it going for the first year. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I spent the first half of uh, 2016 uh, just thinking about how I wanted to de uh, design this thing. Uh, I guess my challenge is a little different than what uh, typical... Because, uh, you know, like at the time I was doing everything, I, I I was new to Bitcoin mining and I was trying to learn everything I could about it, scouring like Bitcoin talk forums and that kind of thing. And uh, th there were there were some people, you know, like I said, doing some uh, uh, mining in secans. So um, the challenge I had is I also have an engine in there which produces a lot more heat than, than the load it, than it's powering because engines are generally pretty inefficient at that 25 to 30%. Uh, thermal efficiency. So had to also deal with engine heat. So I, I spent the first uh, part of 2016 just contemplating and thinking about how I wanted to uh, design my first skid. And especially because I'm pretty much on my own on this, I do have a, a, a partner uh, who's sort of a silent partner. But other than that, it's it was, it's been fully bootstrapped by myself. I wanted to make sure that I didn't screw it up the first time. So uh, yeah, the first like few months, 2016 or 2017, I was in the design phase and then had a design done, I think by June and I ordered the equipment and I, I got the, so I got the first prototype built, um, and mining in, uh, early October. So, uh, just in time for, uh, for the real, uh, bull run to really, uh, start going. So the skid was, uh, there's, you know, I live in uh, mid to northern Alberta. It gets pretty cold here. 
uh, get, we had days actually on Christmas day, um, it was down to minus 40 degrees Celsius. So definitely a bit of a challenging environment for mining, but, uh, the skid uh, is pretty well designed. Like I have it designed such that I can use the heat from the engine in the winter, um, to preheat the air for the ASICs. And then in the summer when it's hot, I can just direct vent out the engine heat so it doesn't preheat the air. But, uh, yeah, no, over the, it was actually uh, pretty surprised at how reliable it ran. Um, aside from like general engine maintenance issues, like, you know, you, you know, uh, belts or spark plugs might go, um, and you're, your routine oil changes and that kind of stuff. Other than that, like there was certainly a stretch there in the winter. I probably didn't have to go out to site a single time in like three months. I just called a, called a mechanic to go do an oil change. He did it. And I, I can now, I I can also uh, completely shut down and uh, configure um, everything in the skid remotely. I can even turn on and off circuits uh, and, and everything like that. So even if like, if there's a hardware failure or something in an ASIC, I can just do a hard reset on the circuit. Um, with this prototype, I really wanted to have, I call it like my Cadillac version. Like I wanted to have it, uh, I could, I wanted to be able to do everything with it remotely. Um, as a, well, one as a proof of concept, but also I, certainly when you're dealing with oil and gas <laughs> producers, uh, they do not want to have to call out their guys really ever like to, to do mate, like to, uh, restart an engine or something like that. Cause certainly on occasion, what can happen is like, uh, the casing gas line, like the line feeding the engine can freeze off and you get, uh, you get your, your inflow choked. So your engine can go down and that kind of thing. So I wanted to make sure that, uh, I wasn't a burden on anybody, especially for this prototype when it wasn't really, it was pre-commercial, I guess you could say. So yeah, yeah cool. it's, it's around for a year. So, uh, yeah, I made a little tweet about that recently. It started in October, 2017 and it's just about a full year. So yeah, it's been pretty, pretty reliable. Yeah. Okay, cool. So l- tell us a little bit about what miners you use in the, like in the actual skid. Yeah, well, you know, I'll just I'll just use like whatever I consider to be the most profitable ASIC at the time. I mean, the skid itself, um, you could put anything in there, like any proof of work, uh, you know, GPU miner if you wanted. Um, the way I, this first one was set up, it wouldn't be that great for that. Just the way I did the shelving, um, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't be ideal. But I designed it for like ant miners, uh, that kind of ASIC. And and if you look at all the new equipment, it's all. We're all standard standardized around the ant miner design, uh, the sort of the profile. So fits really well for that. Right. So how many, as an example, how many ant miners would you fit in one skid? Uh, the first skid I did, um, it can do up to 110 kilowatt. The first skid I did, or actually 115. So that is, uh, uh, what is that divided by 1.4, like 80. 70 odds uh s9s uh, i oh, never okay. did i never did max out that first skid because basically i built a skid to um accommodate the biggest uh engine that i was that i wanted well I, that i could really fit in there but also when i choose engines like when i'm choosing these power plants i'm not choosing like one-off power plants that nobody's familiar with i'm, I'm just going with the stuff that everyone's really familiar with and knows how to do maintenance on 
So I designed it around, around what's commonly available. Um, but what I ended up putting in there was I put a small box Chevy in there, which can do only about 40, 45 kilowatt. So it, I'm still using that small box Chevy at the moment. Um, and I'm actually finding that the small box Chevy, at least for my application is, is the, is the ideal engine at this point, just from a cost, uh, from an upfront capital cost per kilowatt perspective. Right, right. Okay. Um, okay. And then how about with getting internet out to the remote location? And I suppose you, you mentioned earlier that you have to remotely control, you have to be able to remotely control the skid. How do you, how do you get reliable internet out there? Yeah, I just use cell modems right now. Uh, so I, I don't have any redundancy. I just have one single cellular connection. I found that, well, first of all, you know, we're talking about somewhat small scale, like per skid, like we're only talking the, the newest skids I'm coming out with. We're looking at like around 90 S9s could probably fit in there, um, which is still pretty small scale uh, relative to what other, some other people are doing. So uh, it's not that important to have redundant network, but uh, I do have just a single modem on cellular. It's, where we are in oil field, like pretty much most oil well facilities have some kind of communication already and there's already cell tower infrastructure built for them. So it works really well. Um, I, you could go with even satellite mining and you'd have probably a bit more steel shares due to latency. But other than that, uh, cell, cell works quite good. Okay, cool. And then in terms of the setup of the mining, is it basically you would... So the mining, do you set it up to then pick what pool you want to contribute to or how does it, or do the customers pick that or how does that work? Yeah, I only do, I, I only personally do pool mining. Like I don't mine to my, I don't, I don't solo mine or, or run my own uh, pool. So uh, I start, I've, I've mostly done slush pool, but I've, I've done others like CK pool um, and the like. I did sell one skid to an oil field customer. He's, uh, he's mining on slush pool. Um, slush pool is just, uh, it's very user friendly. Um, especially for like a new or sort of brand new guy, like, like the guy who uh, recently bought one. So it's pretty suitable uh, for that. And, and the profitability there is still quite good. They seem to have decent luck, but, but yeah, it's just pool mining at the moment for sure. Yeah. Okay. And then the economics wise, do you, like what's the model is it like a flat rate for the skid or is it a renting model and who kind of owns the hashes let's say do you own those or do the customer own those yeah there's a few ways i i i uh, I can do it um like i recently took off my website like i I was i had i was advertising i was hosting uh i had a lot of people um inquire about that especially when you know when the when the price was on the uptick um, and even, even recently I've been getting a lot of inquiries. Um, I'm finding though right now, I'm not going to offer that just cause I'm not really at scale to, there's a lot of overhead when you're dealing with multiple customers and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So in terms of like, so first and foremost, like the product, the hash gen skid is, is a, it's a solution for the oil company. So they have a problem with their, with their gas vent. So it's a solution for them. So First and foremost, I'm here to build and sell it to them. I, I basically have pre-designs made and I can do custom designs. So I, I can build build basically to fit whatever facility they have. And even if they want to go much, much larger scale, I can easily do that as well. 
Um, so first and foremost, it's actually just to be a, a service provider to an oil company. However, what I'm finding is um, uh, <laughs> it's to like a lot of these oil, uh, oil and gas, uh, a lot of people in this industry are pretty disconnected from <laughs> like the Bitcoin industry and crypto. Uh, to some degree, there there's some people I've met that are relatively knowledgeable and, you know, they've heard of Bitcoin. They have an idea what it is about. And there's other people that have a very negative opinion of Bitcoin. They, they sort of, I don't know, they've made their mind up already that, that it's not for them or it's sort of scammy. Um, I've gotten, I've had conversations with all types of people now. Um, but what I do also offer aside from, uh, offering a product, like, like I, I mentioned that I have this one site that I'm putting it on their site uh, at, um, like at no cost to them, they don't have to pay for the skid, but they're going to just give me their fuel for free because their fuel is wasted anyway. They're just venting it. So I'm going to, I'm able to fix their venting problem. And in consideration for that, they're happy to give me the fuel for free. So it works out that way too. Oh, okay. Very nice. So in a sense, you can go, you can kind of go there and have this sort of symbiotic relationship with, with uh, with the oil and gas companies. So tell us a little bit about the challenges then. I, I think you touched on that before, but let's talk about some of the challenges you faced of working with oil and gas companies and perhaps getting them interested in using this service or interested in Bitcoin. Yeah, I think the main, the main challenge is, you know, okay, so the, like certainly the oil and gas industry for the last several years has been coming through a bit of a recession or a downturn. Um, Canada, more than many, um, our, our, uh, our prices are terrible, um, just due to bottlenecks in our pipelines and a bunch of reasons that I won't get into. But so for the, so when I approach these guys and I, and I talk about what we do and it's always, this, I mean, especially when it's the first time I'm talking to these people, it's the first part is always just about educating on what mining is, how it's, I try to express like try to give them a bit of my enthusiasm get them uh interested in, in bitcoin because i see it as such an, an amazing powerful thing and then it's always we talk about you know economics right so right now like to ask uh or for an oil company to contemplate spending a decent chunk of change on something that is unprecedented like they've never heard of something like this they they don't have any idea what Bitcoin is and, and let alone what mining is and, and no one has ever approached them to mine Bitcoin in these skids. So it's definitely uh, a huge learning curve for every single person that I, that I talk to, but I generally get two reactions. Like I, I usually get a lot of interest because once you start explaining Bitcoin to people and you can, and you can explain it the right way, I think uh, it really starts to engage people and they want to, and they just ask question after question. Um, and certainly there's other types that have already sort of uh, dismissed Bitcoin as being like wasteful or, or just being not useful and sort of a fad. And those people are harder to get through. And honestly, I, I don't try, I don't try as hard with those people because it's just a lot of work, a lot of effort. I, I just try to focus on the people that are, that seem more interested, but certainly pretty much everybody, when I actually show them the economics numbers, they, uh, they go wide eyed because, uh, I mean, uh, the price of gas in Canada right now, like these guys, what they're making on their gas is, 
anywhere between it depends on the time of year but it's been on average like one to two dollars canadian per gigajoule or that's about the same per mcf and that's not very much money that's why nobody's spending any money in gas in this country um and then uh when i show them what they would earn if they might use that same amount of gas to mine bitcoin even considering like you know um a conservative estimate on engine efficiency and that kind of thing it's it's much much higher and i actually publish a graph on my website that i update once in a while <laughs> my website's terrible by the way but I, I update it once in a while and uh just to show what the recent numbers are like and even now when mining is literally at its lowest profitability it ever has been at least in terms of like dollars per kilowatt earned um it's uh it's still pretty lucrative and these skids pay themselves off in a decent amount of time, especially when you consider the secondary benefits they're getting like compliance and they can, they can continue producing the well and all that stuff. Yeah. So the idea is that you build the skid for them and it then exists permanently for them at their site or is it like a temporary thing? Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. That's a good question. Cause the, the nature of, uh, especially this heavy oil industry is you can have like the best well, the most like profitable oil well, like in your arsenal, right? Like it's, it could be making a lot of oil, be very pro prolific. And then out of nowhere, it just goes to zero. It starts producing all water. Uh, we call it watering out in this industry. And it's very common to happen dramatically, like instantly, like not even, we're not talking like days transition, but like from 100 to zero, like just like that. So when that happens, now the well is no longer productive and usually they, if they can, they recomplete the well to find another producing formation. Um, but a lot of times there's nothing else there. So they have to shut the well in. And that's actually the beauty of this, this skid. Like the whole point of the skid is, was meant to be portable, um, plug and play. You put it on a well site, you mine there as long as you can. And as long as it's beneficial to do so. And then as soon as, uh, the opportunity goes away. Like as soon as the well is less productive or you have another well that needs it more, you can move it to the next site. And, and these things, I just pick them up on a tilt deck truck or you can use like a picker crane. Um, but a tilt deck truck costs very little uh, per hour and you can just uh, pick it up with one driver, move it to the next site, drop it off, plumb it in. It's, it's really, really good that way. Right. So it's very portable. And I think that's very in line with some of the other, you know, Bitcoiners who've spoken about this idea of using, you know, energy that's trapped and kind of, in a sense, using this to go and mine and use that energy. Um, so, yeah, let's talk a little bit generally then about, you know, energy, mining. Uh, what are some of your thoughts? Uh, in just what's your background in terms of free market energy? Uh, I would say I have no background. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm a, I'm a definitely, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin and a Bitcoin mining enthusiast. So I've, I've, uh, learned a lot over the last while from, um, <laughs> from just saying stuff on Twitter and then being corrected and then learning. <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my main mechanism of learning actually. Excellent. No, I think that's how many of us learn. Yeah. 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 So. It's interesting because uh, one of your tweets, it's, uh, it's you can't say energy is wasted when the market is paying for its use. All energy dissipates to heat. It is only wasted when nobody pays for it. So what do you, what's, what's going behind that? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, like the <laughs> the uh, what I what I foresee anyway is being like you see it already. Like there's there's a lot of people, even people that have been in this space for a while, that are I, I wouldn't call them Bitcoiners, but they're people that have been promoting the mining is wasteful narrative. There's a plenty of those people already, and mainstream media of, or just media in general have latched onto that a little bit. I saw several articles on that, like over this last bull cycle, and now now that we're in a bear cycle, you just don't see as much posted about Bitcoin these days. But I pers- I, I surely would expect like when when we enter this next bull run and everyone's going bonkers over Bitcoin again, I do expect some uh, anti-Bitcoin people to really latch onto this social form of social attack i guess you could say um but it really it's uh the idea that uh, bitcoin mining is wasteful uh it's pretty much a fallacy as far as i'm concerned so yeah that tweet like what i'm basically talking about like for me as a mechanical engineer um what i think is wasteful is when you you know you have a potential energy source and it dissipates like it just think about these engines I run, like they're running at 25 to 30% efficiency, probably closer to that 25 actually. And so 75% of that power, that potential power in that gas is literally wasted. It just turns into heat. It's just combusted and and vented out the exhaust. That to me is waste. Um, The energy actually used to mine Bitcoin isn't wasted. and that's that. That's where you know you gotta you gotta talk about like uh, subjective value. Like what is what is waste? If someone is if someone is paying for something, if someone finds something useful, then who are you to say that's wasted? Whatever that is, I mean, there's no other way but to to say that whatever you think about that is a subjective opinion. So I pretty much feel that you know. The, for me, the definition of waste is is potential energy that literally dissipates to heat. That's waste. Nothing got any use out of it at all. No, no, no human being, no organism, nothing. Yeah. So, so if someone's willing to pay for something that you can't really say that it's wasted. But and it, I mean, other people have written some good topic, uh, good stuff on this. Like Eric Vosquil, I have no idea if I say his last name right. He has something called the energy waste fallacy on the Bitcoin. Um, which goes into a bit more detail and it's, I mean, it's, uh, I just don't see how you can consider it wasted when like examples for like what I'm doing and there's other, you know, all the hydro miners out there, for example, um, they're using low utility energy, like energy that doesn't have uh, much value. It's, it's a lot of that energy actually is actually just diverted down the river. Like it's energy that's not even used. And so all this surplus, like Bitcoin mining, uh, it's just so competitive. It always seeks out the lowest cost of energy, which happens to be surplus energy sources. And obviously, I'm an example of a case where we're talking about energy that has zero market. Like we're, we're bringing a market to energy that is completely wasted. So, yeah, I, I think the, the energy waste uh, argument is a complete fallacy. And I don't know, some people need to, to educate themselves on that, I think. Mm, yeah, and it tends to be um, the sort of people who, you know, they don't necessarily have much consistency between these arguments that they make and then their own actions in their personal lives because they might, you know, for example, uh, are they the type of person who would refuse to fly ever and try to, you know, truly minimize their use of energy? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, the industry I'm in, I'm in, I'm in Bitcoin mining and the oil and gas industry. So I, I get it from both sides. Like I, uh, you know, I, there's a lot of people out there, um, you know, bashing on fossil fuels, but like they're, they're, <laughs> they're doing it as like their home is like heated through like natural gas or they're, you know, in the comfort of their home, right. Or like they're using infrastructure built upon fossil fuel products. Um, there's, it's a lot, there's a lot of hypocr hypocrisy out there. Like I think a lot of people certainly, uh, they like to walk, they like to talk the talk, but they don't really walk the walk. Like they're, they're, they're happy to use all the infrastructure that's built off of layers upon layers of manufacturing and materials that come from oil and gas and fossil fuels. Um, so yeah, it's sort of just related to, to Bitcoin mining. I mean, I, I just don't see how people can say that something is wasteful and then uh, turn around. Yeah. And get on, like drive their car. <laughs> like, you can't say, you can't say fossil fuels are bad and then, and then drive a car and use like use a uh, fossil fuel derived products like clothing and all that stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of, I agree. There's a lot of hypocrisy out there for sure. Yeah. And one other thing that's really interesting is the, basically the argument around fossil fuels. I think people, they haven't thought about this the right way. I'm not sure if you've read this, Steve, but there is an argument by Alex Epstein. It's called The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. So that was a book he wrote. And one of the key arguments, and I think it'll probably resonate with you, is that we need fossil fuels because they are cheap, reliable, and scalable. And the other thing that he was pointing out is that actually, if you look at human history, it's actually that when we use more energy, it's that we have more comfortable lives, people live longer, they have better access to healthcare, better access to all these other things. And I think that's probably something that resonates with you as you're a guy in the energy industry. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the history, the history of like humanity is, is, is like ever... Uh, increasing in like advanced technology and and when you use advanced technology we're, we're constantly putting more load on the environment like you know you look at somebody who's a hunter gatherer like many years ago uh they're not using much technology and their their load on the environment is like somewhere somewhere equivalent to whatever their metabolic rate is right like whatever energy is burned in their body on a on a given on a given day is really all the load they're putting on the environment so I, I sort of, I, I personally look at things like, like how much, how many kilowatt hours are you burning? Like that's, that's what your load is on the environment. And every single one of us in the first world, like, especially like we're using infrastructure that uses massive amounts of, of energy, like even just using, uh, you know, using your phone, like there's so many layers of infrastructure that make that work. So even though you might, you know, you might, you might not, you might feel like you're, you're being green, like sipping tea in Starbucks. Like you're still, you're still like using many layers of, uh, of infrastructure for sure. So, I mean, we, I think it's only going to really continue. And in terms of like the fossil fuel thing, like the reason fossil fuels are used and they're cheap and it's, it's just so useful. Like fossil fuels are a great way. To, well, it is stored energy. It's potential energy. I mean, all construction projects are basically used on diesel and other fossil fuels. Like the power density of fossil fuels is just enormous. Um, you know, there's this whole, uh, you know, meme on the internet that like electric cars are taken over and that kind of thing. And I really don't see it yet. Like I personally think electric cars are 
way better performing than fossil fuel vehicles, but like the utility of the electric car isn't quite there um, yet. Um, and of course, like a lot of the energy that's generated to power these cars right now is fossil fuel based energy. And uh, I think when you just, when you zoom out, like it's just the technology isn't there yet and it'll be adopted when the, when, when the costs are in line. And certainly, you know, something's wrong if a technology needs to be subsidized to be used. Um, there's something inherently wrong there. Like there, maybe there's, maybe the upfront capital is so intensive that uh, it's just not viable. And you got to realize like upfront, upfront money spent on something has in it, in it of itself, a carbon footprint. So, I mean, just cause you're getting subsidized, uh, I don't know whether it be solar panels or something like that. Um, you got to account for the carbon footprint for that capital spend. And I don't think that's being measured properly. It doesn't seem to be anyway. Like I certainly don't spend too much time looking at that side of uh, side of things, but yeah. Yeah. It's a great comment you make about how some of the infrastructure that many of us use, and if we're not necessarily energy experts or in the energy industry, we're not cognizant of the infrastructure and what it really took to make my smartphone work, to make my computer work, to make my TV work. Um, and I think one example that you brought up uh, is this whole you know electric car, Tesla kind of idea. But in reality, if you look at just the, you know, if you zoom out and look at the actual breakdown of energy, you know, production, a great percentage of that is fossil fuel. So people might, you know, buy a Tesla thinking that they're being more environmental, but not necessarily realizing that they're still using a lot of fossil fuels and it still requires say battery technology and the setup of you know the infrastructure you know in say across of america and canada i'm sure there are many many service stations but that infrastructure would now have to be changed to you know tesla compatible style um you know refueling stations or re-energizing whatever they're called right yeah no i agree completely i think like you know, you look at solar as one, there's a lot of, uh, you know, even the, even, even like Elon Musk is very bullish on solar. And as far as far from what I've, you know, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on solar, but I've read a little bit about it and the advances in like solar efficiency, like panel technology haven't really improved a great deal over the last like, you know, decade or so, even, you know, we're trying to get it better and, and I really hope we do, but um, we're not quite there yet, and a good way to to real a good a good way to just see what is viable for power generation, like a really good way to look at it is see what people are mining Bitcoin off of. Uh, everyone's mining Bitcoin off of hydro right now. Uh, hydro is a great form of energy. It's very very uh, relatively clean. Obviously, there's some environmental uh, footprint, like you know you got to destroy a certain amount of environment just to build the dams and that kind of thing, but. But overall, it's very, very clean, and that's what people are doing for mining. Nobody's mining on solar. Like there, are, I have seen like little pet projects of people mining Bitcoin on solar, but the economics just don't work because you look at the the enormous amount of capital spend that you have to get the panels, and then you have to oversize your infrastructure to like I don't know what the what the numbers are, but like you're going to have to have extra panels to make up more power and store it in a battery. So to to have the continuous one continuous kilowatt um, powered by solar is going to have 
it's going to be many multiples of one continuous kilowatt powered in something like, well, like a small block Chevy natural gas engine, like many, many orders of magnitude. Like you can get a, a small block Chevy doing 45 kilowatt um, for, you can get that engine for like 15, 15 to 20,000, no problem. Um, capital spend up front, the equivalent for, let's say the same um, continuous kilowatt from a solar array even if you're in the best spot on the planet, like I don't know where that would be, maybe like the Nevada desert or something, it's several, many multiples uh, higher. Um, so it's not really, uh, yeah, I think I think mining is a good proxy for just looking at like what is viable power source. And I think the best way to judge it, like it's sort of to account for like carbon footprints and all that stuff. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uncertainties and assumptions made when you do, when, when they make these, um, when they, when they make these calculations, I think one of the best, um, I guess, uh, anal analogous ways of just seeing what has a higher carbon footprint is just compare the net present value of both projects, right? Like whichever has the higher upfront cost is probably going to have the highest carbon footprint as well. That's the way I look at it. I don't know how accurate that is, though. But yeah, and I, I like this uh, insight. It's basically you're saying capital cost of ASICs is steadily decreasing. This is because OPEX increasingly dominates mining profitability over CAPEX, a function of the ever increasing difficulty. Mining is decentralizing with time. Can you explain that a little further for people who are newer to Bitcoin mining? Yeah, uh, the point. I guess the the point the point of that tweet is to counter the narrative that um, some people have been pushing uh, that, you know, mining is, is, uh, has been centralizing and it's getting worse. And there's been some prominent people that I, that I have a lot of respect for actually that, but I disagree with that, that want to change. Like they've suggested we change the proof of work uh, as a means to uh, punish these centralizing entities, like in, in particular Bitmain, right? Bitmain has dominated mining now for the last several years, but like, I guess the, I guess the gist of that, that tweet, like what I'm talking about is mining is decentralizing with time. And I guess there's a few things to look at there. Like there's some like obvious, uh, like obviously it started off with complete centralization. Satoshi was mining, uh, Hal joined them. Um, then plenty of other, uh, enthusiasts were started mining Bitcoin. And while I wasn't around in the early days, um, these very early days, this was pre price discovery. And I just consider like these early days, literally Bitcoin was the definition of an experiment. I think it's sort of a lot of people say it still is an experiment, but I think it's a little bit beyond that. But even in, even in those early days in particular, it was, is a total experiment. There was no, there was no price. And there wasn't, I, I wouldn't imagine, I'm sure there was competition, but it wasn't like the competition we have now. So when the price was discovered, and I, I wouldn't know, I don't know exactly when the first ASIC chip was made, but I, it was somewhere around 2012, I think. It might have been 2011, but in that time, in that time frame, I would consider that like the start of industrialization of ASICs and, and, and really competition really started heating up and mining at that point. But I think like these people that like, so I'm trying to counter this narrative that like, you know, mining, people are saying mining is centralizing. Now it's getting more centralized. And I personally, I think it's actually the opposite. Uh, Cause I think you got to realize like pre
pre-Bitcoin and even today, like wealth, the wealth in the world is centralized, right? Like the, there's already, you know, people talk about the 1% and the 99%. To be successful in Bitcoin mining, uh, A, you need access to capital. Like if you have a lot of capital, you're going to have, you're going to do better just by default than someone who doesn't. You're going to get better discounts. You're going to get economies of scale. Um, industrial mi mining uh, crushes home mining in terms of profitability. Um, so A, like to think that like some of these people seem to think like, oh, Bitcoin should be mining should be more decentralized, but it's sort of ridiculous notion because wealth is already so centralized to think that it like to think that Bitcoin could already be decentralized is sort of silly, I think. But another another aspect of this is like if you look at the history of ASICs and the advancement and, you know, from CPU mining to like, you know, GPU rigs. And I think they were doing like FPGA. I'm not that familiar with that kind of hardware, but um, we've, we've evolved to ASICs. And then when you look at even ASICs, um, when you look at the, when you look at the uh, price history, like what ASICs used to cost, um, they used to be like the capital cost, um, let's say per kilowatt, like per, per the power consumption was rather enormous. Like, and over time, ASIC chips have been getting um, more and more efficient, but at slower and slower rates. Like you're getting like between, let's say the Antminer S, uh, S7 and the S9, you had, I think the S7 was something like uh, 0.25 joules per giga hash or something like that. And then the S9 came out, like it was only six months later or something like that. Like, somewhere around that time frame and it was down to 0.1 joules per giga hash so like multiple fold increase in efficiency in only six months and so obviously there's going to be centralizing pressure there because the, the people who have access to this technology it's it's centralized access and then it, it distributes out but over time like we're seeing like then it took two years for someone to dethrone the S9. It was almost two years anyway. Like how long at least came out with the first public ASIC, uh, the Dragon Mint, that was that was better. And it wasn't that much better. It was only slightly better. Um, more recently, like Watts Miner has come out with their M10. I haven't seen one yet in person, but um, I, I know they're on they're, there's some out there and there's some on pre-order and that kind of thing. And, and they're down to point uh something like 0 0.06 joules per giga hash or something like that but the point is like uh the rate of efficiency gains is, is decelerating because we're we're approaching like our best technology like we're at our best technology and we're approaching tech technology te technological limits so the the technology centralization is going to dissipate because you're because more and more uh, people are or uh, more my, more manufacturers are now competing than probably they have been in quite a while because everyone's hardware is starting to be like on par with each other. Um, and of course, like any industry, like the any product like approaches its marginal cost of production. So Bitcoin certainly mining right now is so such low profitability right now that there's, there's probably not a lot of margins on these on these units. Certainly on the on the older hardware. So you're getting, uh, you're going to see, I think you're going to see more of a commoditization of ASICs, more competition in manufacturers. And so overall more access to the hardware, to the technology for everybody. And then along with that, um, sort of in parallel with that whole 
topic of, of uh, capital costs and technology um, access is is OPEX, like in the, the operating costs, which is uh, mainly power. Power consumption, of course, is, is the primary operating cost for mining. And that's already pretty well decentralized. Like you, you know, you can literally generate power anywhere on the planet with a solar panel, even though, you know, I mentioned solar is not that great for mining, but certainly uh, anywhere you have hydro, anywhere you have uh, existing grid power, whether it's powered off of uh, like geothermal or, or uh, fossil fuels, what have you, it's all over the world. Every country um, generates their own power to some degree. So, so the operating uh, side of the whole equation is already decentralized. So we combine the both like it, mining is decentralizing. And uh, yeah, so the point of that tweet, and I tweet a lot about that topic is like, I, I really hate the narrative that mining, like we need to, we need to change, like, you know, we need to change the proof of work because, because of uh, mining is centralized. Well, that might be the case. Mining might be somewhat centralized. In fact, like I've probably tweeted myself at some point talked about, and I mean, all my discussion is online because I don't like know anybody in real life that knows anything about this stuff. But uh, like Bitmain has certainly had, if not direct ownership of like over 51% of the hash rate, they've probably had very close to it or certainly have influenced uh, close to um, close to that. They probably could have uh, used their influence to conduct a 51% attack if they wanted to, um, and they haven't. So I would say the incentives are working. But regardless, I mean, every market participant needs to be aware, or every you know every merchant in, in the Bitcoin space needs to be aware of the state of the market. And if if you feel like there's a high you know, if like some of these people that are, you know, wanting to change the proof of work, they're obviously feeling that we're under threat. And if that's the case, so they, they just need to act accordingly and just require, they're going to need to require more confirmations to feel safe. Um, because, you know, you can censor with power, you can censor with hash power, but your defense against that is, you know, deeper confirmation depth so now maybe you could explain for the newbies there was some recent talk on i think it's called sia coin or sia and they were basically resetting the proof of work algorithm and bricking existing hardware can you explain for the newbies what does this do to their coins quote-unquote game theory and mining over the long run well uh, i'm very happy to say that i'm not a sia coin miner um like I don't really know I don't really know much about Sia coin. I had heard of it before. I know there's something to do with like a utility token for a decentralized like cloud storage platform. I think that's what they advertise it as. Uh, I just got uh, interested in in what they're up to because uh, it was actually you know I was I remember it was a few months back. You know I I I'm I, I'm interested in. Um, the topic of you know like a lot of people a lot of coins actually like monero for example they try to be asic resistant in ethereum and they think like they think that that is somehow useful um and i've always tried to counter that idea and uh with uh with sia coin i sort of i i respected uh this article one of the developers wrote um they were talking about their plans to build an asic i think at the time and they're talking about um, ASIC resistance and effectively agreed with like my own thinking on it, that it's a futile, uh, it's a futile ideal. Like it's, it doesn't really make any sense. 
And uh, so I, I sort of respected like what what they were doing there, even though I had no interest in, in like the SIA coin. Um, but recently I was just reading like it sort of I saw it go viral a little bit on Twitter and I, I probably bashed it myself. But like the what's happened there is that my, the, what I know about it is like the SIA community and, and mainly, you know, the head developer and their company went and spent a lot of money on building out an ASIC. And then they got beat by uh, in a silicon and some other manufacturer. Someone who's you know generally they just got beat um, at at building out. They got outcompeted in terms of uh, building out ASICs. And the reaction to this is to brick their competitors' hardware, which is uh, uh, well, I mean, like it's anti, it's like anti-competitive for sure, um, and it's like. It's sort of, in my opinion, like it completely undermines the confidence you have in that, in that project, like in that coin for regardless of your, you know, I don't know how you gauge if it's has consensus to do that, but I guess what I should explain that how they are doing this is, uh, the SIA developers built in a secret circuit into their ASIC that, they, I think they could turn it on or turn it off or something that allows them anyway to keep mining uh, using their ASIC while everyone else can't. And it's just absurd because um, these competitors like in a silicon, I mean, regardless if you think like if they were, you know, mining in secret, it doesn't really matter. I mean, the coin is should be agnostic to what's actually how miners are behaving as long as they're following the rules and, and building on building blocks like valid blocks on top of the protocol and i don't know i don't know how you can decide to just brick everyone who's invested in, in your in the coin um and how do they know how many just regular joes who actually believe in sia uh how do they know how many of them bought um asics and that kind of thing and and invested themselves in it and all of a sudden they're just going to say yeah well we're just we're just going to brick your investment and like what i don't know how anyone can agree with that mentality that's an example of the uh, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I think maybe if you could maybe wrap up with some thoughts on where you see Bitcoin mining and energy usage going over the next, you know, two to five years, let's say, medium term. Hmm, uh, yeah. Um, well, uh, for example, do you see more usage, more energy? Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, I was looking at the hash rate there the other day, just, uh, you know, obviously as a miner, I'm just checking on things every now and then, and it seems to be tapering off a little bit, although it's too early to really tell, but I know that from just based on, if you look at the, if you just take, I, I sort of just graph things myself and just see like where things are going. And if you take like the historical, um, the historical revenue that you can generate off of, uh, off of a kilowatt, like how much Bitcoin can you make per kilowatt and what's that worth? Um, it's really at all time lows. Um, and it will always trend downwards cause you know, it's just in increased competition, but there will be some threshold I'm, I'm certain of, but I would say, I would say difficulty will keep rising as is like, there's not really any precedent yet for difficulty dropping too dramatically. Like I think in the last bear market, it, it stayed flat pretty good, but it, it never really dropped. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it dropped, uh, in this bear market. Um, I think there was a lot of like 
an excessive amount of irrational exuberance from uh, the mining community in terms of like, I mean, some of these some of these S9s were going for absurd prices. I think a lot of capital was invested uh, irrationally uh, at the time. But uh, so it's hard to say if difficulty will will correct. I think I wonder if like I know there's some the people I like they're uh, posting they expect Bitcoin to go like the bottom out, you know, in that 4500 range. If that actually happens, um, mining will be absurdly unprofitable. So clearly there will have to be a lot of hash power go offline that or everyone just gets a hell of a lot more efficient. But, uh, yeah, I would say, I would say, I would say we'd, we're definitely going to see more a narrative on this whole mining is wasteful, uh, in the future. And hopefully, uh, there's more people like myself trying to combat that a little bit. And I do see a lot of people are, so I think there's, I think, I think the, the logical, um, you know, if you, if you, if you think for yourself and you, and you take everything into consideration, it's pretty clear that mining isn't wasteful. So I'm not too worried about it. But other than that, um, I mean, I'm interested in seeing where, uh, these hard, these manufacturers are going to go. Like I know Bitmain seems to be struggling a bit, so it's, it'll be interesting to see, uh, how they perform now over the next like year. Like if they're still, cause even now, like everyone, you know, people are bashing Bitmain, but they actually still have the probably the most profitable ASIC, like their S9 is priced well enough that you might, you know, you might actually yield a ROI, whereas like, like some of these new uh, rigs, which are, which are great, like the Watts Miner, um, for the price, like it's just not worth it. So like, I haven't bothered, I'm buying another batch right away and I'm probably just going to buy Ant Miners because uh, why would I, I mean, it's just the, I, I see it as being a better, a more likely to ROI than than some of these overpriced stuff. So it'd be fun to see what thing, what happens now over the next while for sure. Okay. So, uh, where can the listeners find you? Uh, you can find me, uh, on Twitter, uh, at SG Barber. That's really all I, I, that's pr- pretty much it. And I, I have a website at, uh, upstreamdata.ca if you're like, in, if you're into oil and gas and that kind of stuff. And if you're into natural gas in any means, uh, maybe take a look and, see if it's something you like excellent well thank you very much i think i've had a, it's been a fantastic conversation and i hopefully uh hopefully the listeners have found it very educational as well so thanks for coming on steve hey it was my pleasure man it was it was uh it was a fun time hope you found the conversation with steve barber valuable i thought it was interesting to understand more about the business model of turning stranded natural gas into bitcoin mining hashes as well as steve's thoughts on mining decentralization so remember, guys, you can follow me or DM me on Twitter. My handle is at Stefan Levera. My DMs are open. And before you go, if you enjoy these podcasts, please support my show by subscribing, giving it a five-star rating and comment on iTunes. And of course, share the podcast with your friends. Thanks, guys. See you next time.